I want to ask you very first thing, if you will, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Joshua, chapter 18. Book of Joshua, chapter 18. This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject that God has laid on my heart, personal revival. Personal revival. You know, so many times we live our lives as Christians in which we think everything can be uh, okay. And we ignore the fact that at times we need, desperately need revival. I, I heard the story of a preacher who was trying to live on a budget. And uh, sometimes that's hard to do when you have a preacher's wife living in the house. And um, heard the story of this woman. She came home. It's a preacher's wife. She came home with a $250 dress. Well, I mean, the preacher was just incensed. He said, honey, what in the world have you done? She said, well, I don't know. I was just walking by the store, and when I saw it there, it's like I heard a little voice saying, go on in. And so I went in, and when I tried on the dress, it's like a little voice said, it looks so good on you. He said, well, honey, you know how to handle things like that. You turn to that little voice, and you say, get thee behind me, Satan. She said, I did, and he said, it looks good from back here, too. <laughs> I am afraid that many times in the Christian life, we listen to that little voice tell us things are okay. It looks good from right where we are. And this morning, I want to share with you very briefly a story out of the children of Israel, a, a historical event that happened while Joshua was leading the children of Israel to move into the promised land that the people became stalled in their walk with the Lord. And so there's three things I want to show, with, show to you this morning, but the first question that I must ask all of us this morning is the question that Joshua asked his people, how long are we going to wait on our road to Zion? How long are we going to wait on our road when our Christian life moving to maturity? Now read with me, if you will, in Joshua chapter 18, and just starting in verse 1. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. Now I want to stop there for just a second. I believe that more than any other need that we have as a nation, more than any other need we have as individual churches, more than any other need we have as individual Christians, we need most desperately revival. We most desperately need that special touch from God that allows us to move into what he has already promised us and what he has already given us. And so many of us are content to live on one side of the Jordan and not move in to what he has given us. And so as I share these three perspectives with you this morning, let me just share with you the basis for why this is such a, 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 a tender thing even for me at this point. My brother, he, he enjoys doing histor histories and, and researching uh, family history especially. And I, I've also gotten into that most recently with studying genealogy. And so I've been spending a little bit of time going into graveyards and looking at tombstones to find out what are the dates that someone was born and when a person died. Putting those down into a, a historical document for our children for later on. One thing that I have noticed 
is that all of the tombstones or all of the headpieces on these graves, they differ because they have different names and many of them have different epithets. But one thing they all hold in common, there is a date, there is a dash, and then there's a date. There's a date that they were born, which they had absolutely no control over. There was a date that they died, which they also probably had very little to do with. But there's that dash in between that without a touch from Jesus Christ means that that soul entered into eternity hopeless, entering into a devil's hell. If that person had an interaction with Jesus Christ that made a, a relationship happen, his lordship came on their life, then that dash means everything in the world. As I look across our country, I see that we are a nation in need of a renewed hunger for Jesus' touch during that dash. I am more convinced than ever that the three major expressions of revival will come in one of these. Either there will be a repentance of sin that so impacts a community that people see something is changing in the life of that individual or that church. Number two, there's a renewed desire to see souls saved, something that many of us have gotten away from or we have started to feel callous. Or number three, there is a willingness to die so that God's kingdom might be realized even here in our community in our city those three things are evident in this very passage I believe one of the greatest condemnations that was ever given about our generation is that there are not going to be our generation is not going to be known for having individuals rising up and calling themselves messiahs falsely as much as groups of people will falsely rise up unregenerate and lost but call themselves the Christian church we're living in a day and age where even Adrian Rogers one of the great preachers of the Southern Baptist Convention said he was convicted that only one out of every ten members of a Southern Baptist Church was actually saved actually had a born-again experience with Jesus Christ now, if his statistics are true, folks, I'm going to tell you, we are dying men preaching to dying men. And more than anything else, we need a fresh touch of Jesus Christ in our life. I'm asking you this question this morning as you're sitting here at the sound of, of my voice and hearing before the word of God. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ right now? There are either one of three places that you might stand. And I'm going to present those to you in the way that they are presented in this passage. You are either this morning a soldier, a surveyor, or a settler. You have either entered into a fight, entered into observing and watching, or you have started to rest in the peace that only comes through maturity of living with the Holy Spirit in control of your life. Now follow with me, if you will, the rest of this passage. And I want you to take, if you will, your, 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 your uh, little piece of paper, your notes that are inside of your bulletin, and follow along because I believe that the first perspective we see in verses 1 and 2 is the perspective of the soldier. Now if you look again in verses 1 and 2, you notice that the whole assembly of the Israelites had gathered there at Shiloh. Keep in mind, Shiloh was right in the middle of things. It was a place of safety. It was a place where they had already conquered the land, but those that they had subdued were far away and everyone could kind of rest now I don't know about you but fighting is sometimes a fun thing to do 
I used to enjoy it when I was little. I had a brother. Anybody who's ever had a brother, you understand what I mean when I say you enjoy fighting, especially if you're the bigger brother. Until that day and age comes when your little brother all of a sudden goes through puberty and hits you back. Now, as a fighter in the Christian life, we can either experience the fight externally or internally. If we experience the fight inter externally, many times you will notice that Christians will spend their entire Christian existence fighting things on the outside. We have fought everything under the sun. We have fought to keep prayer in schools. And instead of keeping prayer in schools, not only have we lost that battle, but we don't even pray at home. We have fought to try to put the Ten Commandments on the wall in a justice hall. But not only do we lose that battle, we don't even open up the Word of God in our own homes. Now, folks, it's one thing to have a good fight. That is the intrinsic reward of being a soldier. But there is an inherent danger, and you see that in these verses, by having control of something without reception. Control without reception reception. Now look with me, if you will, what he says in verse, verse 2. The, the whole country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. Can you imagine what kind of life that must have been for the soldier? Now for everybody else, it must have been fine. They come in, things are under control, they're sitting there, they're, they're, they're setting up their tents, everything just seems to be normal, hunky-dory, you know, great life for God. But for the soldier who's come in and has spent, spilled his own blood, has seen his brothers die at the sword in order to take over the land that God has given them, I imagine that they, along with Joshua, posed that question, how long are we going to wait before we get into the rest of the place that God has promised us? How long are we going to sit here at Shiloh when God has promised his peace in Zion? How long are we going to stay here and enjoy the benefits of safety when God has called us to move to the very ends of the borders, to the very ends of the earth? I think about this passage and I, I realize that the key concept here is personal devotion. Leonard Ravenhill said, you know, we have taught an entire generation the word of God, but we have not taught them the God of the word. We have taught so many people, sent so many people through seminaries, put so many people through Bible schools, and yet the very inward fighting that we have proves that not only do we not know the Word of God, we do not know the God of the Word. There's a fight. I was at, um, I was thinking about uh, something that happened this past summer. We had what was called a generosity summit this past summer in several locations throughout Georgia. And one of those generosity summits, Ken Hemphill was preaching on a very infamous passage related to revival, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, especially verse 14. If by people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. But he pointed out that in verse 13, prior to verse 14, he says this, if I or when I shut up the windows of heaven so that there is no rain and I release the devourer to devour the land and pests and, and to, to, to plague the land, then if my people, then if my people will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face. He said, there's only one other place in Scripture that you can find that phraseology, the windows of heaven. And it's found in Malachi, where God is having a conversation with spiritual leaders. And he's posing several questions to these spiritual leaders. One of the questions that he poses is, will a man rob God? And they ask the question, well, how have we robbed God? And he says, you've robbed with your tithes and your offerings. Another of the questions that he asked basically is this, are you going to keep allowing the people of God to bring blemished offerings unto the Lord? When we got through that study, it was probably about a month later, a pastor sent me a note. And he said this, I've got to tell you what God did in my life during the time of that generosity summit. He said, I came so under conviction about the fact that not only was I not tithing, not only was I not preaching, giving to the Lord in, 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 in great offerings and all of whom we are, but not only was I doing that, I was holding back the blessing of God in my church's life. I became under so conviction because not only were we, were we suffering financially, we had a debt to pay off for a building. And I did not know where to go. And I was afraid that if I stood up and preached again on money, that all of a sudden I was going to have some kind of mutiny on my hands and people were going to run me out of town. He says, but I got under such conviction, I went back to my church. And he, he said, I confess before my church that I have sinned before God. I have allowed you to not experience the blessing of God on your life through a biblical understanding of giving. And not only am I going to become a tither and give beyond my tithe into an offering of blessing unto the Lord, I'm asking you to do the same. He said, what happened next blew him away. Not only did his people turn into biblical givers, they also, within a couple of Sundays, folks, paid off the church building. Paid it off. He wrote back. He says, how little we trust the word of God. How little we trust. I think about the time when I was in, in college. And uh, I, was, I, I made a decision for Christ when I was six years old. I have to put it that way, okay? My daddy is a Southern Baptist preacher, and, and, and I was born and raised in a Southern Baptist church. I knew everything there was about Southern Baptist life. I was a member of the RAs. I was a member of GAs at times. I was, I, <clears throat> listen, in one, one of the churches, it was so small, I was the youth group, okay? But, but the fact of the matter is, I knew a lot about church. And when I was six years old, someone came in and had the bright idea, we're going to show a movie about the end times, about eschatology, about how Jesus comes back and takes his church away. Okay, for a six-year-old, I got to tell you, I, that was trauma, folks. The very idea that my mama and daddy would be taken and I would be left behind and I don't know how to cook, that concerned me <laughs> to the point that I ran down the aisle. And after I ran down the aisle, I said, I, I want to make sure that I'm in. Well, you know, the church did what it did. It welcomed me in. It baptized me. And folks, from the age of six to the age of 16, I lived 10 solid years under conviction. Under conviction. Because not that I had prayed the wrong thing necessarily or that I had walked the aisle in the wrong way, but that I had not personally understood God's call on my life. For him being Lord and Lord of all in my life. Now understand me, when I was at Liberty University, there was a, a, uh, a little plaque that hung on the wall and it went something like this. 
Two natures struggle within my breast. The one is foul, the other is blessed. The one I love, the other I hate. The one I feed will dominate. I spent 10 years on up into college, struggling, fighting over this battle that was going on inside of me. And I had to tell you, if you had asked what does Christianity mean to you, Buck, at that point in time, I would only be able to answer it's a fight. It's a struggle. It's a constant war. I see who I am and I know who God wants me to be. And they are two different things. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 6. But yet there is a hope through Jesus Christ when he says, Blessed be the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. And you see, folks, that is what exactly has started to happen here with Joshua. When he told these people, you've waited long enough. We have fought. We have spent our time fighting. It's now time to move in to what God has delivered to us. So I want you to notice in verses 3 through 7 that he says this. So Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Appoint three men from each tribe. Now that's 21 because there were seven tribes that were left. I will send them out to make a survey of the land and to write a description of it according to the inheritance of each. They will then return to me. You're to divide the land into seven parts. Judah is to remain in its territory on the south and the house of Joseph in the territory on the north. After you have written the description of the seven parts of the land, bring them here to me, and I will cast lots for you in the presence of the Lord our God. The Levites, however, don't get a portion among you because their priestly service of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to them. Now, it's interesting because this particular portion of this passage really describes the perspective of a surveyor. The difference between a, a soldier and a surveyor is the soldier fights to keep what he has, where the surveyor is out looking for something else. Now, what disturbs me is I think that many of us have long given up the fight. Some of us have given up the fight because we're tired of the battle. Some of us have given up the fight because there's nothing left in us. Some of us have given up the fight because we like the safety of where we're living in Shiloh. But there is a portion of us, folks, who, whether you want to call us church hoppers or people who are just interested in other denominations and what they've got going on, they move around from place to place, from church to church, from experience to experience, hoping to find what God has already promised them in their very hearts. You can look around and say, well, you know, I, I know that I'm saved. I know that God has given me salvation. But what about that group over there? They have some kind of special something going on. i got to go try them out. Have you ever known people like that? You may be here this morning sitting in the very sound of my voice in this room. You might be a member of some church somewhere, but you've come to try it out because you heard something was going on here at Sherwood. You're surveying. You're watching. You're observing. These surveyors were given a task. 
they were told, you guys are absolute strategists. You are ge geometrists. I want you to go in from city to city, and I want you to describe the lands that you see, and we're going to divide this up into seven parts so that the remaining tribes can actually move in. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a, it's a daunting task to be a surveyor. Because to be a surveyor, you have to be an actual witness as to what's going on. I, I, I think about the, the perspective of the surveyor, and I understand that the intrinsic reward is a good witness. You know, you can be a witness wherever you are, some say. You know, it's a disturbing thing to me that uh, in the last 60 years, the number in America of people, the percentage of Americans who identify themselves with some sort of Christianity, some sort whatsoever, has actually dropped 15% in the last 60 years. But what's most indicative and what's most condemning to, to, to me is to understand that 59% of unchurched people, if you were to ask them on the street in an average survey they did, 59% consider themselves Christian and yet have no relationship whatsoever to a local body of believers. They're surveying. They're watching. They're observing. These guys were sad not only uh, going out and trying to witness, they understood that it is a possibility to have a gift without possession of that gift. I met people in Russia all the time who had been saved for years and never knew that God had given them a spiritual gift for use for the edifying and building up of the local body of Christ. It's a tragic thing to have a gift and never really possess that gift. It's like driving around and, and that gift that your, 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 your mother or your father has given you is sitting in the back seat of your car and you've never opened it up. You never really fully realized what that gift is. It's in moments like that that we realize not only do we have the gift, we should possess it, that God begins to break our hearts and we cry out, Lord, send us revival. Because I see that the key concept for this perspective is personal ministry. What kind of ministry do you have here at this church? What kind of ministry do you carry on Monday through Saturday? What kind of ministry leads you to the lost? What kind of ministry does your son or daughter look to you and say, oh, that's what my dad does for Jesus? What kind of ministry do you have at work? Are we simply surveyors of what goes on on Sunday morning? Or have we actually moved beyond into personal ministry? Joseph's son, the, the great, really the famous Romanian who had suffered so much under communist persecution and had come to America. I remember hearing one of his, one of his statements as he was here back in the, in the 19, uh, late, early 1980s and he was gathering up materials to take back to the Romanian brothers so that he would be able to translate that material either into Russian or Romanian and share with his brothers. He made this comment. He said, the sin of my people in Romania is the sin of our desire to survive. We have lived so long under communist persecution that our desire to survive has led us to stay quiet about Jesus. Our desire to survive has led us to lose hope and not go forward.
Our desire to survive has made us into a people who are weak and anemic in the body of Christ. He said, but when I look at America, I don't see a desire to survive. I see a desire for comfort, and it's a much greater sin. Does our desire for comfort outweigh the call upon our lives to take the gospel into the entire world? Has our desire for comfort so confined us to our own homes that we won't walk across the street and tell our neighbors about Jesus? Has our desire for comfort so confined us to the pews that we so love that we will not open our services or our, our outreach to those who are not like us? Let's not just be surveyors. I remember Sumner Wimp said, so many people live such a subnormal Christian life that when they actually start living a normal Christian life, when someone actually lives a normal Christian life, people think they're abnormal. It's about time we start moving into normal Christian living, folks. Now, bear with me just a minute. I want to share very briefly what has so transpired in my life back in 1997 that honestly fuels the passion that I have for this passage. I was, before we went to the mission field in 1998, I was serving on staff at, uh, at Southside Baptist Church in Hazelhurst, Georgia. And uh, I may have shared a portion of this story with you before, but I, I, I've got to tell you that it, it still, when I think about it, it breaks my heart. One of, the, one of the ministries that we had there at Southside was to go into the hospital uh, on a weekly basis and go in and share the gospel if we could, but if not, at least find people who were in the hospital and, and point out that we were Southside Baptist Church and we had a prayer ministry for them, that we just wanted them to know we loved them and we're praying for them. And I would do that on a weekly basis until the hospital became aware of it and finally kicked us out and wouldn't let us do it anymore. But there at Jeff Davis County Hospital, on one particular Tuesday, as I'm going up and down the hall, and I found that there was a door open, I would go in, and usually my spill was something like this. Hi, my name is Buck Birch. I'm from Southside Baptist Church. Just want you to know that we're praying for you today. Is there anything that we can do for you? And I came to this one door, and it was slightly ajar. And as I moved the door open, I noticed that the room was, was dark, but it wasn't, it wasn't totally dark. And I noticed that there was a figure on the bed, and as my eyes became accustomed to this, to this dim light that was in there, I saw that there was a man who was really struggling. He had tubes running out of his nose, out of his neck, out of his arms. And I could tell this guy was on the very brink of death. And I looked at him and I said, uh, hi. He didn't move. My name is Buck Birch. He didn't really move. I said, okay, well, that's enough for that one. I'm going to go on to the next one. So I started to move out the door. And folks, I'm not kidding you. I felt a conviction come upon my heart, go back into the room and share the gospel with that man. Now, you've got to understand, I am a conservative when it comes to theology, and I understand that you can't uh, pray somebody into heaven. That is a decision that someone makes for themselves. But as I went back into that room, I realized I needed to share the gospel with this fella. And as he was blinking, I could tell at least he was alive. There was a beep going on over in the corner, okay? And as I shared the gospel, I got to the end of it, and I had the struggle with God. And I said, God, okay, I've done what you've asked me to do. I'm ready to go. But the Holy Spirit literally, folks, I felt the Holy Spirit telling my heart, lead him to Jesus. I began to have this fight. How? How? 
this guy can't respond. What am I going to do? And that struggle really, really just drove me to the point that I almost had a verbal conversation with the Lord at that point. I wanted to say out loud, God, how? But I kept it quiet. I looked at the man and I said, you realize that if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you could be assured of heaven. And as I had shared the gospel, I said, you could pray in your heart something like this. And I led him in a prayer that went, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to come into my heart and my life, forgive me of my sins and wash me clean. Well, I left. The next day I was coming back just to check on things around doing my, 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 my rounds. I came upon that room. Let me call him Mr. Smith just for the sake of this story. So I got to the room and I, I noticed Mr. Smith was sitting up in his bed. Some of the tubes had been removed. And I said, uh, huh, Mr. Smith, my name is Buck Birch. And he said with a whisper, I remember you. I said, uh, well, that's great, Mr. Smith. If you remember yesterday, we had a conversation. And he said, yes, and I prayed. Folks, I was on cloud nine. I ran back to the, to the church. Well, actually, I drove. It was a couple of miles. <clears throat> Got back to the church. I'm telling everybody about it. You know how that is. The next day, I'm deciding I'm going to go back over there. I'm going to give Mr. Smith some discipleship material, some things from the church. And when I got there, the bed had already been made. So I went to the nurse. I said, can you please tell me the, the home address? I know that's not normal, but can you please tell me the home address? I really want to get some materials to Mr. Smith. She said, don't you know, he passed away last night. Now, folks, what if I had waited? I never knew I was that close to the gates of hell. I never knew that I was that close to Mr. Smith, never having a chance to ever hear again, never having a chance to ask Jesus to be his Lord, his Savior, before he entered into eternity. I had to make the decision from moving in from the fight, from being a surveyor to moving into actually settling in the peace that comes through the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now that leads me to the third and, fi the third and final point, and that's the perspective of a surveyor. And I'm going to be quick, I'm, I'm sorry, of a settler, and I'm going to be very quick. You notice that the words there, the intrinsic reward for a, for a settler is rest. That word rest can be really translated peace. It's interesting because the word Shiloh is the very base form of peace in terms of safety. But when you get to Jerusalem, it's the city of peace that comes from God Almighty. You can have a description without distribution. Look with me what he says in verses seven through, uh, 8 through 10 very quickly. As the men started on their way to map out the land, Joshua instructed them, go and make a survey of the land, write a description of it, then return to me, and I will cast lots for you here at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. So the men left and went through the land. They wrote the description on a scroll, town by town in seven parts. Return to Joshua in the camp at Shiloh. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord, and there... He distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal division. You may have been spending so much of your Christian life in a fight, in a struggle, 
You may have been spending so much of your Christian life surveying, wondering, why is it that this person seems to have it right with God when I can't get it right? You may have been spending so much of your Christian life wondering, why is it that I can't seem to get into that place of peace? That place of peace is promised to the settler who moves in where the, the description is more than a description. It's an actual distribution. The key concept here is Maturity, personal maturity. I heard the story of Horatio Spafford. You know him best, not by name, but by a song that he wrote called, It Is Well With My Soul. You may have sung that many times. Even in Russia, we sang it. What you might not know is that he was a rich Chicago lawyer who back in 1870, actually in 71, in a fire, lost almost everything that he had. All of his properties, his real estate that he was invested in had burned. One of his children was also lost in that fire, and it devastated him. But then in, 19, uh, in 1873, as he was working with D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey to help them in their ministries, he was planning to do some vacation and also visit them, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters on a, on a boat on ahead to the vacation. He was going to catch up. He was doing some last-minute business, and then he received the word in a telegraph from his wife, I'm the only one that survived. There was a ship upon ship tragedy. All four of our daughters are dead. In the midst of that, Horatio Spafford had to make a choice. And that choice was this, am I going to allow the cares and the things of this world to drive me away from God or drive me to God? Am I going to allow this to repeal my Christianity or lead me into revival? It didn't end there, actually. Even after he wrote those words that we sing, it is well with my soul, and literally it means it's peaceful. When peace like a river floods my way. In 1876, he had another son, Horatio Jr., who died of scarlet fever. They started a children's home in Jerusalem, and that children's home was ministering to orphans, and, uh, and, 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 and it was really doing well, but then he contracted malaria. And almost as a blight on that family, in a living representation of a Job, Horatio spent the very last portion of his years in delusions suffering from mental dementia. You look at that and we say, how is it that God could allow something like that to happen? I say, it is well with my soul even sometimes when I allow what may happen with my body to not be well. When we get to the point that we can say, I'm going to give my all to Jesus Christ. From this point on, I don't want to have this constant struggle. I don't want to be on constant search. I want to settle in the peace that only comes through Jesus Christ. And today, at this moment, I give it to him. That's when you will find your true shalom, your true peace, the true moment of why God made you for that relationship with him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.